0: Have advances in food science when a net positive or negative for society. What contribution does the food industry have in influencing our day-to-day nutritional choices, and what does this have to do with socioeconomic status? What can we do about the significant dogma around certain diets, and how does the field of law translate into becoming a better nutrition researcher and communicator? This week, we are once again looking at the contextual factors behind our diets with Lawyer, now turned PhD candidate Alan Flanagan. Alan was previously uh, practicing barrister, which is a much cooler name for Lawyer, before turning to his passion of nutrition and now holds a master's in nutritional medicine, while cur- currently pursuing his Ph.D. He's also the founder of Alinea Nutrition, which aims to promote science based nutrition for healthcare professionals, and also a contributor for Sigma Nutrition with Danny Lennon, who's been on the show before. Lastly, he is also the host of the Cut Through Nutrition podcast. Yes, society quality, once again, isn't the best, and I am traveling, so I apologize for that. I'll be back to my regular art quality pretty soon. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please be sure to support the show. Or if you enjoy any of our previous episodes, then support the show by rating and interviewing us on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. And now let's get into the show. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. And in this one, you will hear that, once again, like I said in the intro, I am not in my regular studio. I'm uh, actually in Los Angeles right now doing some uh, life duties. So hopefully, you can forgive any sort of uh, disturbance with them that may pop up in the background, whether it's a car or a lawnmower or something like that. Um, but today, we're going to be continuing our discussion on nutrition. And once again, we're not talking about specific macronutrients, micronutrients, anything like that. We're taking a step back and looking at the contextual factors and the bigger picture of nutrition kind of different things that influence our lifestyle and very happy to welcome uh alan flanagan onto the podcast um he is a phenomenal person to follow if you are not already so i'll make sure to link his instagram and his social media links and alinean nutrition as well down below so go check those out but uh welcome to the show alan
1: i'm really happy to be here i'm looking forward to our conversation thank you
0: Definitely. So you were formerly a lawyer or barrister, which is a much cooler name for it than what we have here in the States. Um, I read a little bit about what uh, kind of drove you to switch, but I want to ask you from yourself, what drove you to getting a master's and kind of switching and jumping ship to nutrition? Yeah.
1: So it was always an interest, kind of the way you might have a career and also read, I don't know, history or something in your spare time. And, and nutrition had always held that place for me as something I was quite interested in. Um, and in your early years, uh, as a barrister in Ireland, you, you know, you're building your practice and you can have uh, a little bit of downtime, you know, because you're, you're not that busy yet. Um, so I had some spare time and I wanted to put it to good use and I thought I might do a weekend, uh, course like a diploma course in nutrition like nothing too heavy something to basically dip my toe in and see if i liked it at that level at a more kind of i guess formal studying level Uh, so did that on weekends loved it got to the end of it and thought okay this needs to go and i had the good fortune of a lecturer on that course kind of taking an interest in me and being like you should Try and think about maybe going on, looking to do a master's, which which I wanted to do. I wanted something higher level education. I wanted something that could be an avenue into maybe one day either combining, which is my original thought. Was I have an interest in the food policy side of things? I, I the that big picture, and I initially didn't have a plan to leave law. I thought I'll do this, and this will be a great a professional qualification bolt on to what I'm doing in law. So I'll be able to kind of have a little bit of expertise in both, but I got really bitten by the research bug when I was doing my, um, MSc thesis and the research I did there was in dietary intake in night shift workers. Um, and I thought I'd really like to try and get into research more fully, um, and that opportunity started to, to, to present itself through the university I did my MSc with. So I knew that that was going to be full-time PhD research. So when that kind of fork in the road arrived between do I stay in law and look for a part-time PhD or do I leave law and go full-time into nutrition, the decision was kind of already made for me. I, I, I wanted to really immerse into the world um, get into research. And then also at that point, I'd started to build up a public profile with this kind of nutrition science communication side of things. And, and i wanted really to also embrace that side of it and to, to try and, you know, further develop. So, you know, where I'm at now, obviously with the PhD started a linear nutrition during my PhD and also working with Danny Lennon and Sigma nutrition. So we produced this nutrition podcast and, other educational resources there as well. So yeah, my life is now totally and utterly uh, immersed in nutrition as a field.
0: Yeah, did you did you find that switch difficult at all? Because I know uh, being a barrister, I'm just going to call it barrister now for this podcast because it's much cooler than lawyer. Um, yeah. Did you find that switch difficult? Because it's not necessarily based in the sciences. I know there's a lot of uh, education required. Law school is very difficult. But it's not mm-hmm. necessarily like critically appraising evidence, nutrition, all those kinds of things. And I know my fiance did a similar switch, actually. She went from uh, starting to become a lawyer to going to physical therapists. Um, did you find that switch difficult at all? Um,
1: challenging, possibly more than difficult. So the, the one thing that I do look back on and appreciate now is that, yes, look, you know, going to law school is, it's, it's difficult. Um, it's academically strenuous. There's a lot of reading. There's a lot of volume of information to get through and retain. And also, particularly for barristers, we have a, a difference in our in our legal system where solicitors are the ones that work closely with clients and they have the one-to-one relationship with clients. And barristers, and this is deliberate, so barristers are designed to be kind of one step removed from the client where really your duty is to support. Yeah, so it's you, you've got this separation, so you're not too involved, so to speak. And that gives you a position where you're possibly able to be a bit more objective about the strengths and limitations of a case. You give them bad news if you need to give them bad news. And you learn lessons early on. I mean, I certainly I can remember one case in my third year where just on the facts, I thought this was a slam dunk from my side. I thought this is great. And as a result, I got a little bit cocky, didn't probably give the case the detailed scrutiny that it needed and I got my ass handed to me basically in court and I came out of that being like okay that's and so the point is that you developed a habit of scrutinizing your own case as if you were your opposite number it's like if I'm on the opposite side what am I looking at here what am I seeing and so there's a great lesson in objectivity in in law that that you can develop and that skill became really useful for me when I started coming into nutrition, because it's a very uh, interesting field. Everyone eats, everyone feels like they have a stake in nutrition, even within certain aspects of the science community. There's incredible bias throughout the field, not just in the, in, 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 in the scientific research. I wouldn't say there's as much bias as people say, but in the wider nutrition discourse, there's an enormous amount of bias. And there are scientists that contribute to that bias. So it allowed me to that skill of of not being emotionally kind of invested in any of it. And then you do develop critical thinking and critical appraisal skills. And what I just needed to do was to change the framework in which I was applying it. Um, and become, and a lot of that then for me was just becoming more scientifically literate on things like statistical principles and methodology and otherwise. So, so in hindsight, there's actually a lot at face value, law and science completely different, but actually at a more epistemic level, there's a lot of consistency. Like science starts with a question to be tested. Law starts with a question to be tried both science and law set standards of evidence that dictate whether it's been met or not. And those standards are arbitrary. Like a p-value of 0.05 is as arbitrary as, as beyond reasonable doubt as a standard. <laughs> like it, they're, they're both human endeavors and we have put our own structures on them. And I actually realized that the process of, of law is very similar to the process of science. So you need to accumulate your evidence. You need that evidence to be of sufficient veracity that someone can decide whether your case is accepted or rejected. And that's what we do in science. You, you build a case, um, essentially, to try and show that saturated fat is associated with heart disease or that dietary fiber is beneficial for you know uh, lower heart disease rates or something like that. So you're still doing the same process. And I actually, in hindsight, came to really appreciate that Without me knowing it, a lot of my legal training had actually come to really benefit me as I went through my master's.
0: Yeah. It sounds like from the from the surface level, you would never think that these two kind of, they're similar skills or skill sets behind them. But once you start talking about it, it sounds actually that it is a very net benefit or net positive to you because it's something that once again, like we were saying is very lacking in the uh, nutrition field where there's a lack of objectivity. There's a lot of dogma around certain ideas, even scientists, once they start like, whether it's whatever they're doing with their PhD in or whatever they first start researching, whether it's like, let's say low carb diets or anything, they just only stick to that So objectivity is probably a very net positive for you. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, education level and kind of dogma a little bit later in this. And that's one of those kind of more uh, higher level things about nutrition. But first, we're going to start off with our first basic question, which is always uh, sounds basic, but always ends up with uh, pretty different answers. And that is, what does preventive medicine mean to you?
1: Yeah, I remember thinking about this a little when you, you know, uh, preventative medicine and I think nutrition fits into preventative medicine for me, because nutrition primarily is preventative as as a as an exposure. I think preventative medicine to me is when I think about that as a concept as it relates to the kind of the chronic disease issues that face us in modern society. So these are diseases characterized by long latency periods where factors earlier in someone's life are influencing the disease outcome later in life. And we know that there's this real mix of social and environmental and economic and other factors that feed into the skewered risk in, in different populations. And certainly in Western populations, that risk profile has become a bit more homogenous. So whether we're in the UK or the US, very different populations, very similar characteristics. So I think of preventative medicine as a systems-wide approach to creating conditions in our societies that reduce the burden of disease in those societies, or at least take that burden of disease and dramatically shift people from higher risk to lower risk. So when I think of preventative medicine, I think of it as a whole population uh, type of Consideration and very much a systems and policy focused way of. Of shifting this this kind of distribution of disease to get more people either from higher risk to lower risk or from moderate to lower risk to not having these outcomes at all. Um, And I tend not to think of it at the kind of almost individual level of a doctor performing a surgery, which is of course Mm -hmm. an enormously vital part of the system. But the fact that your heart surgeon is performing a triple bypass on that individual whose artery are full of atherosclerotic plaque is precisely what we would like to keep that person off the table in the first place. Um, and so in that context, it's a systems approach in which all obviously individual medical and, and indeed nutrition professionals will play a role. But I think the problem that I see it in our societies now is that medicine and nutrition almost exist adrift from what happens in society. So they're playing a purely reactionary role for the most part. We're dealing with the fallout on the back end once people are already sick. Um, And that type of setup isn't going to change unless we really have a systems-wide policy and legislative initiative to to try and help to shift this. So preventative medicine is basically political.
0: (laughs) I I 100% agree with that. Whether it wants to be or not, it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's honestly one of the reasons uh, or one of the ideas behind why I wanted to start this podcast because we do see so much of that fallout from just not being able to have these things on the systems level. And then you have physicians in the healthcare system. I don't know how it is in the UK, but in the US, it's just falling apart because there's too many patients, not enough physicians, not enough healthcare to go around. And then you have poor outcomes and just it's, it's not a good situation. And I want to ask you, you mentioned those... Um, The policy level and in the legislative level and all of that and even nutritional science, we've kind of evolved a long way over from Mm -hmm. when we were our ancestors as uh, some people like to uh, put on Instagram and I love your stories on that by the way, the ancestral diet. Yeah. our diet looked very different previously and nutrition science has evolved greatly over the uh, kind of years. We've been able to feed more people due to advances in food science, all those kinds of things. And some people say that this is a net negative though because now we have these hyper-processed foods and people are just eating too much of it. We have Oreos that you can eat a million of. so there's kind of the net positives and the net negatives. What do you think about this? Where has our evolution of our diet been a net positive thus far, or are we doing ourselves a harm by continuing to evolve nutritional sciences and all these things?
1: Yeah. So I think we need to, on this question, distinguish between the role of science in developing our understanding of the impact of nutrients and nutrition on the body and total dietary patterns and how that influences health versus the influence of the food industry, which utilizes science itself, utilizes um, methods of research to better understand how people can respond, you know, to, to, to a bar of chocolate or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I think the problem that we have now and probably developed initially slowly after the post-Second World War period, and then and then really exponentially started to explode from about the 1960s onwards, is that that food industry that uses scientific methods to improve the, the creation of our current food supply, from its perspective, improve. From our perspective, the products that are being produced are incredibly detrimental and harmful to human health over the lifetime and, and cause disease the they're two different they're two different and indeed diametrically opposed paradigms and this is the problem so we have the academic discipline of nutrition science that's trying to understand how food you know does good for the body so to speak or indeed how food maybe doesn't and understanding that uh so we can you know intervene and and reduce or offset disease risk and then on the other side we have the industry which is producing a food supply and a food environment that is quite literally killing people um and both of those cannot necessarily exist uh in complete isolation um but the problem is we we exist in a particular certainly in countries like the us and the uk ireland similar and some other western countries we we exist with a particular socio economic uh, and political philosophy that guides um, the role of, of of industry and markets, mm-hmm. and so in any other in any other kind of sane system, we would look at this and say, well, on the one hand, we have the academic discipline trying to understand and and indeed producing evidence that shows that, for example, this dietary pattern increases your risk, this dietary pattern decreases your risk, but then. On the other hand, we have this completely unchecked industrial science food industry creating this, this supply. And so you're never going to have the ability from the academic side to have your findings really make that much of an impact when you've got a food industry that is in control of the entire food supply, from production to to uh, of the actual raw materials to the production of the food products to their dissemination in the population, to their marketing and advertising, uh, they, they control every aspect to it. So this is the problem, is that is that both of these ig- exist in a competing tension where there can only ever be one winner, and that's the food industry. And we have a prevailing socioeconomic political doctrine that says you never do anything to fetter with the market, the market should be free and unimpeded, let let the market decide. Now, in principle, that only works if we assume that the market is a neutral, benevolent actor, right? Mm-hmm. But we know we you know, we, we this is this is a failed experiment. Like we know that's categorically not the case. And in the extreme circumstances of deregulation, we know that ultimately the market ends up producing grossly inequitable outcomes, disproportionately impacting the most disadvantaged in society, um, which is certainly what the food environment and the food industry does. Um, and yet we can't have any serious conversation about intervening at the level of industry because we're told, well, you you can't do that. That would be to... to and." The the subtext there is that would be to fetter with profit. So mm-hmm. so so science and the academic discipline of nutrition is being asked to compete with the private sector. It can't do that. And what we have is this really bizarre dichotomy where the private sector drives the public health. <laughs> And and that that yeah. really sh- that really shouldn't shouldn't be the status quo at all. Uh, and, and and it's it's little wonder in that context that that the industry side of food science and technology in an unregulated scenario has produced the level of of sickness associated with a sick food
0: supply and food environment. So it sounds like we have two opposing sides and we just have the food industry that is maximizing profits, doing what they can to increase their revenue. um, Despite what is happening kind of on the population level, especially with the people that they are affecting, all they're doing is trying to increase their profits. And then you have kind of the scientists on the sidelines being like, hey, we probably shouldn't be doing that. I shouldn't be doing that either. I should make food this way. But uh, obviously they're not going to listen because that would hamper their profits. I think on one side, we have kind of nutritional guidelines that are created by the scientists within nutritional science that are kind of out there to help people decide within this food environment that the food industry is providing, which foods you should gravitate towards. However, one of the issues that I've seen with that is that these nutritional guidelines are somewhat disregarded in a sense where they yes. look at the government providing or whoever provides these nutritional guidelines because they come from like nutrition.gov or uh, whatever the websites may be. And people say, oh. They don't know that much about nutrition. It's the government. I'm going to trust private industry as well because for some reason we have this culture of private industry being better than what the government can provide, at least here in the United States. So what can we do to kind of translate those nutritional guidelines better? Because I don't think us as the nutritional community, the medical community, is ever going to be able to go up to industry and say, hey, don't make those things. So how do we kind of translate our guidelines better? Yeah, I
1: I, I think that becomes a really unenviable task as far as the difficulty of it like our guidelines and the guidelines come in for massive stick and they are a bone of contention particularly for people who are of a certain dietary persuasion and they feel that our dietary guidelines for example you know turned people away from eating a diet of meat and milk and eggs and butter (laughs) it's kind of like okay well you know um (laughs) There's a conversation we could have around that, but I, I think the the problem is based on our current available evidence um, from from both observational prospective cohort studies and from intervention studies. If people adhered to the guidelines, their health would be immeasurably improved. Right? We we absolutely Definitely. know that. Um, quantitatively, we know that their risk factors would be improved significantly. We know that they would have lower risk of mortality, um, all cause, and and you know specific outcomes like cardiovascular disease. So, the guidelines are clearly not the problem. Again, it comes back to this competing tension between the fact that you've got public health guidelines, but the the primary driver of people's food uh intake in the population, the primary driver of the composition of our diets is the food industry. Um, and so so, you know, the, the question of how do we get people to better adhere to characteristics of our dietary guideline recommendations is really then a question of well, how 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 ultimately can we reshape the food environment? And we're not really going to be able to do that just from public health messaging. You know, we, we know that there can be some responsiveness to public health messaging. But the evidence from that area is pretty clear that after a while, there's a saturation effect. We know that the people that are also most likely to be responsive to public health messaging are people who are generally more well-educated, middle class and up. Uh, have more disposable income so if they hear a public health message that eating you know kale and tomatoes is good for you they're likely to do it but they they're starting from a higher health profile baseline already Um, whereas you know if we're telling people that fruits and vegetables are good for you but they're living in really inadequate housing in an area of high levels of social deprivation they they may not, we think fruits and vegetables, yeah, they're good, but they're also perishable food items. It may not make economic sense for a family in that circumstance to, to buy perishable food items if their aim is to just make sure that they're getting enough to eat to be satisfied. So this is why, you know, coming back to that idea of what is preventative medicine, I mean, it's a systems-wide approach to to addressing these issues at the whole population level I don't think we're ever going to get people let's say for example our the five a day fruit and veg recommendations right gram amounts that averages out at about 400 grams of vegetables and fruit a day you know we're not going to be able to get people at the whole in the population to reach those targets unless for example, we're facilitating that there's access to these foods in, in lower income areas in the first place, you know, that people have the capacity to be able to store them properly, or that if it's in the case of vegetables, there's time, there's preparation skills that come into it. So, so we need to always, I think when we talk about like, well, how do we get people to implement this diet or this change, we need to, I think from the nutrition standpoint, think less about just the act of what that food is and where you might get it, and actually start thinking about all these wider contextual factors that prevent people from doing it in the first place.
0: We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. So you mentioned a couple of things in there. I want to touch on and bring up uh, education level, as you mentioned, that people with a higher education level are those that will tend to be um, more coherent to guidelines and they'll say, oh, I don't really want to do this because the guidelines say so. I don't understand kind of where those guidelines are coming from that I'm going to adhere to it. However, on the other side, you still have people that are very highly educated that end up falling into very strong dogmatic patterns of dietary eating, whether it's a specific low carb camp whether it is a let's say completely plant-based camp and you have people that either perpetuate or just buy into fad diets and um why number i'm gonna ask two questions here number one why despite education levels do you think people fall into these fad diets so strongly despite somewhat knowing that you can critically appraise things like say even physicians that we know in our training we are somewhat trained to critically appraise data, whether it's medication, all of that. So, that's one question. Why do they fall into these traps? And Number two, how do you break the cycle of fad dieting? Because a lot of these people who do create these fad diets put it on social media, gain a large following, and then this kind of filters down to those, maybe in lower socioeconomic statuses, which makes it more confusing for them because they're like, oh, we have these guidelines here, but now we also have these fad diets. What do I do? And they might not have the knowledge able to discern kind of what what is better for them.
1: Yeah. So the, the, the diet tribe diet allegiance thing is really interesting. And, and, and it's interesting, you, you know, you mentioned, you know, physicians even because it's something that I've really noticed in the UK is, you know, a lot of medical doctors, endocrinologists, you know, people that I would expect to be able to maintain that level of critical appraisal and, and be 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 conscious of things like bias, like end up becoming the, the biggest dogmatists for some of these diets. Exactly, it's, it's wild to see,
0: but I, I don't I, understand it at all. No, I,
1: I don't get it. Like I I don't get how they can still go around thinking they're they're credible. Like, and <laughs> I have friends of mine that are you know say dieticians here, and they'll say they'll they'll have you know some like an endocrinologist or, or a cardiologist will say, you know, everything you're doing is wrong. <laughs> like you should have your patients on a, on a low carb diet, or you should have your pa- patients on a carnivore diet. So how did you get to this point? You know, <laughs> and and it really makes me worry then about like, well, if they've bought into this with a diet, like what, what's the rest of their practice like? Like, are they actually putting people in arms <laughs> way? But what this speaks to is, I think, nutrition is kind of unique as a as a science, as a health science. It's the only area of health science that I can think of that simultaneously doubles up as a human belief system, right? We know that diet is something that varies across the whole world. It varies for cultural reasons, religious reasons, um... You know, regional regions, even just geographical and otherwise. Um, it re- varies for ethical and moral reasons. So it's very unique to have a subject like that that has all of these inputs into what ultimately we end up studying as, a, as an exposure. You know, it's, I, ca- I can't think, I, I know nothing about physics, for example, but it, physics doesn't strike me as a field that has you know, religious implications or ethical and moral implications or, you know, regional differences. Like I'm sure E equals MC squared in Norway as much as it does in in Chicago and Sydney. So I, I, don't, I don't know why we, you know, we, we, we kind of uh, have a difficulty with nutrition to sometimes separate that out. I think people because it's also something that every single one of us requires for life, right? We need nutrients for life. You need a base amount of nutrition in your diet as a human being to sustain life. And that makes it unique as well. So, you know, people, people might, you know, uh, like do other, you know, even exposures like cigarette smoking or alcohol, maybe someone drinks twice a week, or maybe they Maybe they used to smoke more, but now they smoke like three a day. But with food, people eat multiple times a day. They spend most of the day in a fed state. So it's it's something that everyone does at this very personal level, whether it's conscious or not. Um, and I think that creates this unique place uh, that makes it very susceptible to people becoming... Uh, very beholden to ideas and beliefs rather than evidence and and reason. <laughs> um, and I think that's why we see you know independent of education status we see people falling for for this kind of stuff because of that very human tendency to want to identify with a camp to want to be part of a tribe um, and and we've done this with, heaps of things over the years and we continue to do it with you know political affiliations or, or other aspects of people's lives where they affiliate even if it's just supporting a football team you know so diet just unfortunately for an area of science also is one of these things that falls into that kind of camp and and makes people independent of how smart or educated they are unfortunately really susceptible to be drawn into. The narratives that that particular group has created for themselves
0: outside of really enjoying pizza for myself uh, I think I've broken outside of the cycle of fad diets um, I still eat a lot of pizza that might be considered yeah. a fad um, probably not but how do people get out of these fad diets? Because it seems like in our diet culture that people just go from one diet to another where you'll have one uh, mega influencer, one physician, let's say an endocrinologist say that you should be eating low carb because it'll be better for you. And then after some time, this person does low carb, they either stick to it long term or they feel, okay, this isn't sustainable, let's find something else. And the cardiologist over here saying you have to go completely vegan. And then they do a 100%, 180 and eat only plants. And then people just keep kind of bouncing back and forth. And it seems to be a pattern that a lot of people do this for their entire lives, unfortunately. How do you think people can break out of this and what's kind of the best way? Because it doesn't seem like education is the best way necessarily to break out of these diets, right? No, I, I don't think
1: education is. I don't think just merely telling someone, look, you know, dairy's not going to give you cancer or, you know, like eating just meat is not a great idea. <laughs> like, you're yeah. So I think... This comes down to more trying to help people understand, like the critical thinking side and the the fallacy side. And I think that approach is probably more helpful than just trying to sit down and discuss evidence or science, you know, it's to use that kind of street epistemology approach and actually start to probe someone as to like, okay, that's interesting. Like, why do you believe this? And get them to actually be the one. I think the problem is we have this desire, which is completely natural because we come from evidence based modalities. This is the way we're kind of taught and trained. So if we hear someone say, well, I think an an all meat diet and no vegetables is the best diet for human health. Our kind of response is, well, that's not true. And we kind of end up going into this very didactic kind of science mode. Like we're going to, I'm going to show you evidence why this is not the case. They don't care about everything. They've arrived at a point where all they're eating is ribeye steak. Like evidence is not the problem here. (laughs) So, so I think it's more to kind of probe like their beliefs and get them to justify their beliefs. And that's, that's often where people end up exposing themselves um and i think that approach is possibly more helpful to get people out of bad diets is to get them to justify their beliefs for you to probe why it is they think that way in the first place what what thinking are they going into and then to try and highlight some of those fallacies within that like oh well you know if i just ate if i ate lentils and that was all I ate would I be healthy and see what justification they'd they'd say no and see what justification they give and then kind of explore that justification you know so it might go something like well no because you know that that doesn't have all the you know nutrients and red meat does have all the nutrients and well if that's your justification then you know this is you can kind of start to then show the, the flaws in the thinking and I think that's more efficacious than trying to just like show someone a paper and say this isn't true because they don't that's not what they're there that's not what got them there and it's not what's going to bring them back they got there because of bad thinking and 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 trying to and trying to cultivate better thinking is what's going to get
0: them back Now, do you think that could be done on a larger like policy or legislative level or through the power of social media, through education, um, through like various posts of like taking people through these logical fallacies of their own thought process? But the problem there is that I don't think people are going to be intrinsically looking at an Instagram post and thinking in their head because we will just scroll past. So, does this sound like more of an individual effort between uh, some sort of healthcare provider or some sort of dietitian, nutrition provider, or can this be done on a larger level?
1: I don't think it can be done on a larger level because social media as it currently is formulated and the algorithms amplify the lowest common denominator and they amplify outrage. They amplify, like you look at liver King, for example, I remember I <laughs> we're saying, just going like, to drop the name of this. point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure like, cause he's now got something like 2.4 million followers yeah i have fifty thousand. like i'm i can't i can't compete with that unless i start you know eating like like bull testicles and i'm not particularly inclined to do that so so the fact because i remember when i first was sent his account people being like look at this i think he had something in the region of like maybe over a hundred thousand you know in that kind of like Mm hundred and within the space of three months He's up in the millions. Like that's that's everything that's wrong with social media. It's 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 again. It's everything that's wrong with everything uh, on the platforms being targeted towards just pure and utter outrage. Right? Because because all he's doing is 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 marketing. Like it's it's marketing genius. He owns an ancestral supplements company. So the best way to sell that is to grow the reach of their platform, but the supplements are secondary to him just doing outrageous stunts like eating you know fish eggs straight from the fish's ass and all this kind of stuff and it's like you no one can compete with that trying to communicate science and evidence like you just can't so we're not going to do that on any sort of mass level and we know the public health kind of initiatives like are, are largely not gonna not not gonna work so yeah this, this is where from the from the preventative aspect, th- th- this is where the whole population type approach is never sufficient in isolation. It's go- It always requires targeted interventions at a more individual level. And this is an example of where more targeted, you know, one-to-one uh, work is going to better disabuse people of these ideas. And there is a role for social media in this. You know, I will have messages from people, you know, saying... I used to think this, that, and the other, or I was in this diet camp and I found your page and, you know, like it's, it's really like made me see what, what was wrong with that and, and come back and think of it more critically and blah, blah, blah. And I really appreciate those messages, but I also find them devastating because I realize this is just one person in a sea of madness, yeah. you know? And so and that makes me realize how small scale the potential for that kind of change. If you think you're gonna change things on social media or with wider media, you know, it's it's just not gonna happen. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think that's something that is just gonna be at an individual level and there's there are inevitably going to be huge chunks of people who are lost to these diet tribes and fads. Um, and probably until something bad happens for their health that makes them realize maybe the error of their ways. Um, and yeah. unfortunately, that that's often what it takes, isn't it? Right? It, it it takes someone to get sick or have some sort of adverse, you know, consequence of whatever a weird and wonderful and extreme diet they've adopted, in, in order for them to maybe second guess what what got them there in the first place.
0: And, and the irony of all this is that most of these fad diets or whatnot are always in the name of prevention, where they're always, nice, this nice. is the ideal diet. This is what is going to prevent you from um, getting a triple vessel uh, surgery on your heart or mm-hmm. something of the like, or prevents you from getting a stroke. And this is, this is the irony of it, which is why it makes me kind of sad about all this because you have someone who's out there following liver king, eating nothing but uh, like steak, whatever it may be, increasing their cholesterol levels, next thing you know, they're going to get atherosclerosis, heart attack, all those kinds of things. Um, and unfortunately, some of the people that uh, suffer the most from these kinds of things and these diets are those in those lower socioeconomic communities. Yeah. And because they can't afford to eat steak every day, they'll maybe either buy the supplements or they'll do what they can um, in order to kind of adhere with this because they think, oh, this is probably the best diet. And you were talking about those of lower socioeconomic status, mostly benefiting from those larger dietary guidelines or those policy-like changes. And I want to come back to that because mm-hmm. we can't just have people wait for these like policy-level things change. Because I, in my opinion, at least, I don't foresee that changing, at least in the U.S. Um, no. So on an individual practical level, what do you think people of lower socioeconomic status can do kind of in the face of all these fat diets, all this stuff on Instagram, and the dietary guidelines not really going to change? What can they do?
1: uh yeah it's 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 look it's it's challenging i think there's um there's also additional challenges with the fact that often lower income areas don't necessarily even have some of the big chain supermarkets you would think they would but they often don't um and so this concept of like food desert and stuff has emerged um and sometimes local stores Although they might have a lot of food produce, they're actually more expensive because they don't have the economies of scale to be able to like, you know, sell a lot of of produce for much cheaper prices the way like, you know, a a Trader Joe's or something would. Um, But so I think I think there are a number of things that 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 can kind of, you know, be done. Um, I think you have a lot of staple foods that aren't necessarily that expensive, Um, you know, like beans and legumes and rice and grains. And these foods are all very health promoting. Um, They're also not necessarily expensive. The barrier there then tends to be food preparation and time. Um, So someone might have access to these more staple foods but they may not necessarily have food preparation skills in order to make you know, that tin of beans, for example, yep. into a nice chili or something. Um, and then there's the time factor as well. So I think one of the difficulties with this conversation is we tend to start like talking about these barriers as if they're almost uniform and they're not. So everyone is going to differ in terms of what challenges they um, have in terms of improving diet. So I think what people are, are are best to do is to actually identify like what's my what's my barrier here? Is it time? Um, is it food preparation skills? Um, is it, you know, just not really knowing what might be good foods that are maybe not perishable or cheaper to buy? You know, where do I go in a supermarket for this kind of thing? And so I think it's like identifying the 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 lowest hanging fruit. Like what's what's the biggest barrier that 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 prevents them from doing things? And most people have an idea of what that barrier is, right? Um, and then, and then trying to remove that as, and so that the the strategy or whatever they do to try and remove that is really going to differ based on whatever the barrier is. So for someone with time barrier, it might be trying to batch cook, right? Let's say time is their barrier. Maybe they try and yeah, like batch cook a large amount of food on maybe a Sunday or something like that if it's food preparation skills you know maybe it's just but they have time maybe it's just taking that kind of extra effort to actually even follow youtube videos and you know like like try and develop on that front if it's really a knowledge deficit as far as like what foods are actually healthy you know then it's you know seeking out and and again this is where i would actually encourage people to just like actually follow the guidelines in that sense you know Mm -hmm. like they're not going to result in a negative outcome you know and it, it keeps people away from the noise as far as people that are raging over what should or should be eaten so <laughs> it's, it's really challenging with 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 the socioeconomic status aspect of this conversation there's just no uniform answer and it really just does depend on this on the on the circumstances um, in which any kind of individual finds themselves in so I, I tend to answer that by saying, What's what's the biggest barrier and how could that be addressed or attenuated or circumvented in some way?
0: Now, I know you were a huge history buff. I think you did your undergrad in uh, classics and history, right? Is that correct? Okay. I want to ask you a little bit. I'm sure you've read a little bit. I don't know how much you've read, but these lower socioeconomic areas I think are pretty – I think they're the key to improving public health on a large scale because now as a physician, what I see is those people who do have those adverse outcomes are typically those of a lower socioeconomic status Mm -hmm. just because of chronic disease building up over time due to poor nutritional habits or whatever it may be. So I think that's really a key to improving public health from a preventive standpoint. How did these lower socioeconomic statuses, uh, like the people in these communities, come to be in this position? Because it seems like it's just getting worse and worse with access to foods, with access to medicine, with access to all of this. So I don't know how much you can speak on this. This might be a very broad, crazy question, but what is driving this?
1: Well, I mean, we've always had, we've always had, uh, you know, certainly in in Western countries, there has always been a degree of a class system. Um, And so, you know, we had the, the, the classical world is really interesting because their societies were ordered based on this assumed natural hierarchy, right? So there was this assumption that the natural world including human beings, had hierarchies in it, you know, that there were bigger dogs than smaller dogs, and that some people were born as either royalty or or, or of noble birth, for example, and that some people were born slaves, for example, and this was your lot because it was preordained by nature. And With the fall of of certainly the Western Roman Empire and the emergence of early Christianity, you you had this actual shift to a way more egalitarian society. But then you have the emergence of the feudal system in Western Europe, where you really have people who own land and then power and people living on the land and generally serving that landowner. And so we have these kind of, you know, social structures that emerged, um, that in some parts of Europe, you know, like the feudal system in Russia really, really went right up until, until the Bolshevik revolution in many respects. In Western Europe, we see it slowly erode away as more kind of, um, you know, different systems start to emerge and, and more kind of democratic systems in many senses. um, and then, of course, America, you know, is founded out of a lot of what would have been that early, you know, Enlightenment period in Europe. And then some of these ideas transported over there. But, you know, we still had and, and always had, certainly within the colonial system that emerged in Europe, these distinctions being made arbitrarily on people's status in society, with slavery being one of the, the, the worst examples of that. So we've always we've always had societies that have either arbitrarily or by force put you know structures and 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 hierarchies on the social order, and I think when we start to see it really come into play with nutrition over the industrial revolution, um, and people's diets were absolutely horrendous during that period, and it's when modern nutrition science starts to emerge. But really what you have in, in that period is you have the emergence of specific regions um, where the town or the city is dominated by a particular industry. And that's fine for the period of that industry. But if that industry is rendered obsolete or changes or just desists, um, then you have these areas that go into terminal kind of decline So you have that, for example, with the Rust Belt in the US, or you have it with the north of England here in the old mining and shipping industry towns. And the problem is, unless they're given support, these areas tend to... We know that factors like like low education attainment perpetuates intergenerationally. We know that even things like trauma perpetuate intergenerational trauma is like a recognized phenomenon within psychology now. And, and we also know that nutrition is a part of this. Will will actually there's a lot of interest now in, in utero exposures and um, maternal uh, nutrition during during pregnancy, um, the, the the immediate period. And so, if you've got these factors that are influencing health status, and they're compounding generationally, and then those areas are getting nothing by way of new industry or news or, or or support, then you end up with these. Or, you know, where we have now these enormous, gross inequalities between, say, where I am, London, for example, London on the whole would be considered this very affluent, major European city. But the the inequality within London is so bad that in one of the areas, uh, the borough, the kind of uh, council areas within London which is Chelsea and Kensington. Now, for most people, they hear that here and they think Chelsea Kensington is very posh, right? That's its reputation. Yeah. But between the richest and the poorest in that area of London, the life expectancy difference now is 22 years. This is wild. Wow. This is the sixth richest country in the world. And the life expectancy difference is 22 years. You know, we we've, we've see this now in America with declining life expectancies in the you know, the southern states and the Rust Belt, but you compare that to, say, you know, Silicon Valley or or California or New York or some of the kind of more urban metropolises. So there's this enormous urban-rural divide. Um, and, we, we you know, there have been various points in history where political systems have attempted to actually address these inequalities. America had this period from the New Deal period onwards, you know, from the Great Depression that, that led to this, this, this period in American life, where everyone still looks back to as if that's the hallmark, you know, the kind of post World War Two period, where, you know, America geographically was fortunate to not to not suffer like actual, you know, cities destroyed. So you've got this really high quality of life, You've got rising living, you've got rising real wages. You've got people who worked what would be blue collar jobs were able to put children through college. You don't have that anymore. <laughs> uh, we don't have it anymore. You know, the the lack of social mobility, I think, is is a major issue here. and the the kind of absence of a social conscience from democracy. Got hijacked somewhere around most of the kind of economists that I and economic historians I would like would kind of identify the late 1970s as a period where this idea of democracy existing to facilitate a free market rather than democracy controlling a market to allow it, and not entirely controlling it, but at least putting bounds on it to allow it to produce outcomes that improved everyone's life. Um, so we have this long history of arbitrary hierarchy and inequality in amongst human beings in societies, but we've also had these inflection points where there's been periods of systems to to actually improve that. And we've seen those improvements, but now over the past 40 years with the very hyper kind of neoliberal economic model we're now seeing life expectancy decrease in the poorest communities we're seeing people dying way younger before COVID, if they're the, the poorest versus the richest we're seeing gross levels of disproportionate ill health amongst communities in rural areas or former industrial areas the opioid epidemic in the us we see the same not the same extent here but alcoholism rates and these are generational issues uh, unfortunately and there there's there's no one that I can see certainly not in the states or not in the UK politically that seems like they've got any decent answers to these questions.
0: Now, this is this is one of the exact reasons that I am starting to talk about these things because I've realized that beyond the individual level, if you want to talk about actual preventive medicine and health, that you have to start learning about history. You have to learn why all these systems are in place to so what they the way that they are, why all these uh, specific populations are being affected. So you can kind of reverse these and guide policies towards that level. And Ooh. like you were mentioning, I don't see any politicians who are kind of keen to these, who understand what's going on, who know why it's going on and have the aptitude to kind of think and create policy to solve that solutions. Yeah. And this is why I invited you on because uh, outside of the individual, let's talk about vitamin E or vitamin D. Yeah. I think at this point, that's kind of pointless, right? Because if we really want to improve health, we're not talking about vitamin D, we're talking about policy to maybe improve uh, access to food to cooking food and all those things and yeah um, i hope for the listeners back home this wasn't very boring or they were expecting something to talk about vitamin e but this yeah. is what i think true nutrition is at this point <laughs> yeah i'm in complete agreement mate um, so we're going to start wrapping this up and our classic question, which also could tend to either be very basic or somehow get very complex is if you are at your Starbucks or local, uh, local roaster, someone comes up to you, recognize you, Hey, you're Alan from uh, linear nutrition, right? Uh, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them in two minutes? Uh, sleep more, stress less,
1: Get some outdoor light exposure every day and eat plenty of vegetables.
0: (laughs) All right. That works. Uh, Easier said than done, though. And then the implementation has a whole different story, right? Exactly. All right. Well, I, uh, I really enjoyed having you on. I learned a lot from this. I selfishly have a lot of these guests on that know a lot more about various topics so that I can start getting introduced to them and do my own research later on. But uh, I hope I hope the guests back home enjoyed this. Uh, Alan, where can people find you? I will already have all your links, but what do you want people to see? Where do you want people to find you?
1: Yeah, so I, I actually keep social media fairly narrow. So it's just Instagram. Um, so I'm there at the nutritional underscore advocate. Um, Alinea nutrition is my site it's a research review focused specifically on nutrition science and then you'll also find me at sigma nutrition with the sigma nutrition podcast that danny lennon and myself and and also dr neve aspel produce and there's also written materials on sigma nutrition as well that i've i've authored so they're they're the three places i hang out basically
0: and I would highly suggest those. I am an avid reader of a lot of those. Very good information. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Great shot. thank you for listening to this episode of the preventive medicine podcast if you enjoyed this episode and want to help us spread the message of prevention first off rate and review this podcast second off you can find our content on our social media platforms at prevent pod that's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next one